On Sunday, October 30th, 1938, millions of radio listeners were shocked when radio news alerts announced the invasion of Earth by a species of creature from Mars. Orson Welles and his cast effectively fooled millions of people who were listening to the radio as they did an adaptation of a novel by H.G. Wells entitled War of the Worlds. You probably read about it, you know well about it, and some of you maybe were alive listening in your living room, as many did. The script unfolded by interrupting a musical variety show, uh, normally run by the CBS radio network at a time when most people pre-TV would listen to the radio and the dramas and the music in the evenings in their living rooms. The musical program was interrupted with the news that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. And the variety show just picked right up where it left off and played a little bit more music. It was then interrupted again, this time with a lengthy eyewitness report of a reporter who was on the site, and I read as I was researching this, I read his reported. It was, it was pretty chilling. Uh, he reported live, so to speak, as slimy Martians were emerging from a huge flying saucer. It wasn't a meteorite after all, and then they were shooting people with their laser guns. Now, even though Orson Welles began the program by telling people his show was an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, And even though several times throughout the program it was repeated to be a fictional adaptation, people only caught bits and pieces, believed it was true, set off a national panic that we're still very aware of today. All across the United States, millions of listeners reacted. Many in the New England area especially loaded up their cars and fled their homes. People improvised gas masks. Uh, people became hysterical. They thought the end was near. Scores of people around the country flocked to churches to pray. When they learned the truth, of course, many were infuriated. A lot of lawsuits came to Orson Welles, which actually catapulted him to fame. And he dealt with them all. And of course, it was proven he had warned people it was fictitious. His idea wasn't really new. In fact, as I researched this particular event that had caused such worldwide panic, I came across the story that in 1927, the British broadcasting system had already pulled a similar hoax, though not nearly as dramatic. They were giving a play-by-play of a mass riot that was reaching London and had begun to sweep through it. And of course, that caused a, a widespread panic as well. Now, you'd think that today... We're a lot more grown up. We're a lot more cynical. Uh, Nobody could ever pull anybody, uh, the the wool over anybody's eyes like that. Well, about 15 years ago, a radio listener or radio listeners to KSHE in St. Louis, Missouri, were startled to hear their regular programming interrupted by that, that, you know, siren sound, that monotone jarring signal of the emergency broadcast system. It, It just kind of Started and then it was interrupted by the radio disc jockey named John Hewlett, who came on and said, Your attention, please. This is not a test. The United States is under nuclear attack. I repeat, this is not a test. 
Instead of verifying the report through other media outlets or even running the radio dial to confirm the news, it sparked this panic. People in that area who were listening dropped everything, raced to get their kids, called their families, gathered together so they could be together when the bombs finally hit, wiping out civilization as they knew it. About an hour later, the the owner of the radio station came on and apologized for Mr. Hewlett's misguided remarks and promised action. I, I just interpreted that as unemployment, which probably happened. As I thought about it, this idea of announcing imminent danger, but only as a hoax, can go back quite a ways. In fact, it can go all the way back to a rather famous story about 500 years before the birth of Christ, compiled by a guy named Aesop. Aesop's Fables. And a rather famous one of those stories, the boy who cried wolf. Shepherd boy was a little bored with the whole thing, watching the villagers' sheep, and so he cried wolf. And the villagers raced and it said that he amused himself by watching their panic. Thought it was a lot of fun. So he did it again, several times. And then when a wolf really did come and he yelled for help, no one came. What the villagers thought was a hoax was this time, in reality, the truth. I I couldn't help but think about that for millions of people, the announcement of coming doom is considered just another one of your strange ideas by people who spend a little too much time in church. And how long have you been in the book of Revelation? That ought to be a sign. The church that takes the Bible seriously is just another version of CBS radio. You know, they preach that stuff to get their ratings up and maybe fill up a few more seats. You take the average person on the street to the book of Revelation and the warning of coming world conflict and global epidemics and tidal waves and hailstones the size of golf carts and they will think you fell and hit your head. Are you serious? You must really like fiction. Have you ever heard of Orson Welles? The truth is, this is the word of God and it is not fiction. The human race will discover one day too late that God never amuses himself by bringing panic to people. And furthermore, God never cries wolf. He only speaks the truth. And we arrive in our study at that future moment when the warning of God effectively comes once more and with it for a period of time, the end of mercy. Let me invite your attention to Revelation chapter 15 as John continues to preview things to come and with this study, we'll end that series as the preview is over and the details in chapter 16 will begin to unfold. This is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. It was so short I thought we'd cover it in one sermon and prove miracles do happen. (laughs) In this chapter, the stage will be set for the final drama in human history. Verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, 
great and marvelous. That is stupendous, amazing. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Now there are some interesting, significant phrases here in verse 1 that we don't want to skip by too quickly. Seven plagues which are the last. The last of a number of plagues that have been happening on the, the planet. And notice the last part of verse 1. The wrath of God is, is finished with this. The meaning and tense of that Greek word finished, teleo, means to reach its culmination, to, to come to a conclusion or to a completion. Now there are those who believe the rapture will occur before the seven bowls in chapter 16 occur, as John previews in chapter 15. They reject the view that the church will be raptured prior to the beginning of the tribulation period, which is called pre-tribulationalism, which is our perspective as we teach the book of Revelation at face value. Instead, they hold what is called a pre-wrath view, because among other things, they believe that this scene previewed in chapter 15 is when the wrath of God really begins to pour out upon the earth. And so they hold that the rapture will occur just prior to this point, thus allowing the church to be rescued from the wrath to come, as God promised the church in Revelation 3, verse 10, but to go through the first half of the tribulation. The trouble with that is what John says himself. He does not write here that the wrath of God begins with these plagues, but it ends with these plagues. These are the last plagues of God's wrath in a series of wrathful acts, so to speak. This is the last expression of the wrath of God during the tribulation period. In other words, this is the last of what we have now learned to be three series of cataclysmic events, including plagues that have carried the wrath of God against fallen mankind. The first series began in Revelation chapter 6 with the opening of the seven seals. The second series of cataclysmic events, beginning in chapter 8 through verse, uh, verse 1 through chapter 11, the end of that chapter, it was the series of trumpet judgments. We've already had disasters. We already have had epidemics. We've already had plagues. We've already had tsunamis. This is simply the last series to come, and with it, the wrath of God will be wrapped up in the tribulation period. Now, in this final series, you have what John will introduce to be the image of seven bowls of wrath, literally saucers of wrath that will be poured out as the wrath of God is brought to a conclusion in the tribulation, and Christ will then return to earth for a thousand years, as we'll see later on. Now, you have this stunning announcement. You have this statement that the wrath of God is reaching a climax and completion, a conclusion. And then suddenly the scene shifts and we're whisked away to heaven to watch tribulation martyrs as they sing to God. Look at verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now we have seen this sea, S-E-A, already in Revelation chapter 4, and now again here, where the throne is pictured as set upon it. 
and surrounded by what John calls a sea of glass. It isn't a sea and it isn't glass. Look again. We will just interpret it literally. He says, I saw something like a sea of glass. In other words, I don't know how to describe it. It looks kind of like a sea when it's tranquil and it's reflecting. It's shimmering. It's like glass. It's like a sea of glass. Imagine the word crystal is used in another text. This sea, this, this placid arena upon which the throne of God sits and the glory of God reflects and the the lightning that we have already observed flashing around his throne and the circling beasts and, and all the hosts of heaven. This is an incredible sight. Moses also, by the way, had a vision similar to this when he and the leaders of Israel uh, saw the text says in Exodus chapter 24 verse 10 under the feet of God would appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself had a hard time describing it but it looked like sapphire it looked like the sky just the hue of blue must have been Carolina blue amen isn't that good to know Some of you are looking forward to heaven now knowing that it looks like, it doesn't look like that, sorry. (laughs) Ezekiel described it as something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal. So you have this, this expanse of glass, as it were, like a tranquil sea, not a ripple anywhere. And it's not a pond, by the way. It's a sea. A large expanse. And you can see the reflection of the glory of God and his throne upon the crystal sea. Imagine that. And there, John says, I saw standing on the sea a company of people that he will tell us are martyrs who've arrived at the glory of heaven having been killed by the program of the Antichrist during the tribulation. Verse 2, John adds another physical description to the sea of glass that didn't appear in Revelation chapter 4 in Ezekiel or Exodus. He writes, look at verse 2 again, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now fire is often associated in the Bible with God's judgment, so that's no surprise to see that here. Hebrews 10.27 refers to the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 speaks of our God being a consuming what? A consuming fire. So here you have even more to try to comprehend and imagine You have the impending judgment visualized by fiery red mixture swirling, as it were, like some vapor in the color blue. This this mixing of red fiery color to the crystal sea upon which his throne stands. It becomes a terrifying description of his anger and his judgment, which is mixing, so to speak, which will pour down in one final devastating series of events. Now you think about all of that, and and then we're going to be introduced to people who are standing on that transparent sea of glass with 
with mixing of red in it, fire, speaking of judgment, and they are not fainting. They're about to sing. How do you sing in the presence of holy, awesome, resplendent, glorious, God like that, knowing this picture's coming judgment? How do you not fall over? How do you not run? Because they're standing there in the confirmed, justified safety of the Lamb, which they will sing of. His atoning work that was accomplished on their behalf. They have no reason to fear. They're safe. And they realize it there and have it confirmed like never before. Some time ago, I had to go to the courthouse downtown Raleigh and see somebody regarding my excessive haste. <laughs> my focus on the ministry. I, well, anyhow, I knew one of the judges who normally held court downtown as a federal judge, so I came downtown, and after I gave my investment to the great state of North Carolina, which I love dearly, I stopped by his courtroom. I told him I was coming downtown and what, and he laughed a little bit with me. And then he, he told me to stop by and see him before I left downtown. So I, I went inside the courtroom door and stood there. It was filled with people, people milling around, people filling the pews, and people up front. And I could see a lot of activity going on. And I, I saw him. He was sitting up there on the bench behind the big desk in that panel, kind of awe-inspiring courtroom. And in his black robe, and I thought, I'm not going to interrupt him, and uh, I'll just slip out, and I was just getting ready to slip back out, and he spotted me in the back, and he said, come here. I said, me. (laughs) He said, yeah, come here. I thought, I can't believe this. So I walked down the aisle, everything shuts down, everybody's looking. I walked down the aisleway, walked through the swinging door, right to my left were four guys shackled together in orange jumpsuits. I looked down at them and how you doing didn't seem fitting. So I just kept walking up and I got to the edge and he kind of looked up and I got to the edge there and he reached down. He said, hey, pastor, he shook my hand. He said, courts in recess, come with me, hopped up. He went to his chambers, and I, you don't argue with a judge in his courtroom. I followed him into his chambers. We chatted a bit, prayed a little bit. He came back out, hopped up on the seat. Court resumed, and I I left. And, you know, I thought about that as I looked back at this scene here, and that came back to my mind. I, I, I didn't stick around to watch that courtroom scene, but I can guarantee you that judge did not shake the hand of those four men. I doubt it. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. I seriously doubt he invited them back to his chamber to talk. Now, to those men, he was a judge. To me, he was a judge, but he was a friend. And our friendship was based on our common faith in Christ. 
That's what's happening here. Although you have judgment swirling, pictured red like fire in that placid crystal sea, shimmering, reflecting all the light of the glory of God. You have these saints who are about to sing, filled with joy. Why? Because he is an awe-inspiring judge, yes, but he is their friend. John describes these believers in verse 2. Let me make one more point before we leave this verse. Then we're going to really have to hurry, but Let me make one more point. Notice how he describes them. He describes them as those who had been defeated by the beast. Oh, wait. You with me? He describes those who had been what? Victorious over the beast. (laughs) Victorious. Why? Well, he says they, they're victorious over the beast, his image. This is the Antichrist. His image and, and the number of his name. In other words, they wouldn't allow him to place upon them his mark. The mark would be the sum total of the numbers attached to the letters in his name. We don't know what those letters are, but the mathematical sum of them would be representative of his name. He, he tried to put his name on them, and they said, No, upon us alone is the name of our Lord. We say no to you. We will not bow to you. And he takes their lives. Their refusal meant death. And John refers to them with heaven's perspective that these martyrs are the victorious ones. They are the winners. They don't seem to be winning. Every time the the, the Antichrist's guillotine blade came down, he said, in effect, I have won another victory. In the world's eyes, these believers were considered the losers. They had been captured. They didn't fit in. They were out of step. The world was mesmerized by this one who had miraculous power, who was the, he said, true living expression of God, but because they confessed faith in in Jesus Christ as Lord alone, now they're stripped of everything. They would have been seen, seen as powerless, helpless, stripped of everything, and then their lives taken. And the Antichrist would say, we won again, and God says, here comes another victorious one. What a perspective. The Antichrist is under the delusion that he is demonstrating absolute power while in reality all he is doing is running a shuttle service to heaven. The Antichrist thinks he's worthy of worship, but from the perspective of heaven, I like the way one author put it, he said the Antichrist is nothing more than an elevator boy. I like that. An elevator boy. Delivering, as it were, saints to glory. Down on the earth, the Antichrist seems to be winning in the presence of God, the victory celebration of these who seem to have lost everything. Now begins. They sing two hymns. We're given the titles. Verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses. That's one. The bondservant of God. And the song of the Lamb. The Lamb's hymn has already been introduced to us earlier in Revelation. Some nuances are added here. The song of Moses comes from Exodus 15. 
where the children of Israel celebrated their deliverance from Egypt as they sang beside the Red Sea after escaping with their lives from Pharaoh. This was the song of their exodus from slavery and toward the promised land. The song of Exodus 15 verses 1 to 19 would be stamped in the memory of every Jew. It was sung at every Sabbath evening service in the synagogue. Uh, To this day, every Orthodox Jew in their services will pray two prayers or more, but one of those two standard prayers will refer back to Exodus 15 and the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses was originally sung at the Red Sea following their deliverance. The Song of the Lamb with that will be sung here at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb with this is now a song of triumph over the Antichrist and Satan and death itself. The song of Moses sang about how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb sings of God who is bringing his people in. The song of Moses was one of the first hymns in the Bible. The song of the Lamb is one of the last in Scripture. The wonderful British expositor, John Phillips wrote in his commentary on Revelation that the lyrics of these hymns begin with how great thou art. Basically, verse 3, look there. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. How great thou art. Not only that, but how good thou art. Notice next. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. How great thou art, how good thou art, And how glorious thou art. Verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Your your glory causes us to glorify you. How great thou art, how good thou art, how glorious thou art. Listen to them sing here. You notice there's not a word of their suffering. Because it is now seen with the perspective of heaven. You notice here there's not one word of complaint. Because they now stand before the throne of their great and awesome God, right? Who could complain? Now that you are forever rescued and you're in the presence of the glory of God. And you might note, in fact, you might even circle in your text here as they sing. All of the pronouns have to do with God. There's not one pronoun having to do with the singers. Great and marvelous are your works. Righteous and true are your ways. Who will not fear and glorify your name? This, this choral outburst is, is focused upon and flooded with the exaltation of God. One author wrote generations ago these wonderful words, in the perfect presence of God, self is wholly forgotten. Isn't that good? Won't that be wonderful? He goes on to say, heaven is the place where we finally forget about ourselves and remember only God. So nobody's running across that sea going, hey, I got a question. (laughs) Nobody's going to say, hey, hey, what'd you do that back in 73? What were you thinking? 
I had a guy come up to me. I said, so now why, why are we studying Revelation? I told him, you know what? If we stopped right here, it'd be enough. Because the elevation of God and his glory to us becomes great. And we become small. And in fact, if we can gain the perspective of these saints, our relationship with God can change dramatically. You see why they're singing here? The Greek language gives us three what they call hati clauses or because clauses. Look at verse 4. Because you alone are holy. That's why we're focused on you. Because all the nations will come and worship before you. Now that's a fascinating statement and that'll give us a reason to continue studying the book of Revelation because we're going to get to the kingdom. And it's going to tell us about all of the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who've accepted the gospel by faith in Christ, who've survived the tribulation, and they enter. And now, annually, the prophets tell us, they bring the glory of their nation to God. Can't imagine what the splendor of those ceremonies are going to be like. And it also gives us some great insight into the kingdom on earth that we'll study together. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, Zechariah 14 all refer to the nations who come annually to worship the reigning sovereign Lord. Now what John sees next is, is again, truly amazing. Look at verse 5. And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The word temple is naos. It refers to the holy of holies. That's the place where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was kept, which housed the two tablets of, of stone, the law written by the finger of God upon it. So in this vision, you have the Holy of Holies opened, the tabernacle in heaven, which is what the tabernacle of earth is, is a representation of. Verse 6 tells us then that, that these seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, the Holy of Holies, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. They look like Christ did in chapter 1. Why? Because they represent him in the act of judgment. Judgment has been given to the Son by the Father. John chapter 5, verse 22. And you notice here that these angels are dressed in linen robes. That was the dress of the high priest. Why? Because the angels present the image that they are at this point the representatives of God. They are coming from the Holy of Holies, the place of God's glory, so to speak. They are coming with a message from God and you really don't want to be here to get the message. They come from within. That is, they represent the place where the law stands with its perfect holiness. They represent the, the law, and guilty man will be punished for violating the law. See, if God does not judge sinners, and it will be illustrated in the tribulation on earth, and God is not a true judge, he is not holy and just, sin must either be punished on our behalf in Christ, or it must be punished in us for all of eternity. If God sort of sweeps sin under the carpet of some distant galaxy, then he becomes a crooked judge. 
The prophet Habakkuk asks in chapter 1, does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? The answer, of course, is no to these rhetorical questions. David answers in Psalm 19, the judgments of the Lord are true. They're right. They're holy. They're perfect. They are righteous altogether. The angels here then have been given the authority of Christ to receive their saucers pictured as that which holds divine retribution. And it will be dumped quickly. It isn't a trickle. Uh, Chapter 16 and a few verses gives us the scene. It happens like that. As the wrath of God culminates in this final series of judgments. They file out of the Holy of Holies. They approach the throne of God. These angels do what we're told. Look at verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. It will be absolutely horrifying. The Apostle Paul has already taught us that the wrath of God is, is being stored up. You can render that. It's being stockpiled. He does act in judgment. He does awaken the conscience of, of mankind uh, with, through a number of things. And, and, and even today, he is, he is drawing men's attention to the truth of his word, though they reject it and deny it. And even when these bowls of wrath are poured out, instead of repenting, man will curse God. God is forbearing, Paul wrote in Romans 2.4. That is, that word means to hold back, to delay. His wrath is piling up, but he's holding it back. One of the gifts of grace and mercy toward unbelieving mankind is that God does not strike him dead at the first word of blasphemy. And aren't we glad? God allows even the unbelieving man to enjoy life to receive the sunshine and the rain, to be able to go about his business and experience the pleasures of life. And it is the mercy and grace of God that allows him to do it instead of striking them down knowing they will not believe. But there will come a time, we're given the preview here, when grace is withdrawn, there is the end of mercy And no one can stop his hand. But mankind still is belligerent. And they would consider us just a little bit wacky to believe this. I thought of Robert Ingersoll, who lived in the mid-1800s. He's a brilliant lawyer. He was an agnostic. His father had been a Presbyterian pastor. And for years, at one point, served as the associate to the Arminian evangelist Charles Finney. In fact, he preached often for Charles Finney when Finney was away, especially in his European tours. Robert grew up to defy any accountability to God. In fact, A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, called Robert Ingersoll this daring blasphemer. At the height of his fame, this attorney, and by the way, he was... He was wined and dined by the political establishment. He delivered the Republican Party's address. 
in, in a presidential election season, people would pay a dollar a ticket just to hear him speak, which was an enormous sum of money in 1850. Often times when he spoke, he spoke brazenly against the existence of a personal God. And he would hold his audience captive as he stood on a stage before thousands of people. Often he would do the same thing. At times he would take out his pocket watch and he would say, if there really is a God, let him strike me dead in 30 seconds. And he would open his watch and he would count down 30 29, 28, 27, and people would literally faint. I mean, you might whisper this doubt to your own mind or heart or maybe to some close friend, but you would never get on a stage and challenge God to prove his existence by striking you dead. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one. And then he would say, you see, there is no God. If I were God, <laughs> right about the time he said, three, two, And a watch would just fall and hit the stage and he'd be gone. And then you'd hear a booming voice and you'd hear me say, Anybody else? <laughs> so that's what I would do. Aren't you glad I'm not God? But there will come a time when those who've rejected the gospel, in fact, they have heard an angel circle the globe by this point, delivering the gospel and the warning, and they will continue to refuse. Millions will accept. Billions will refuse, more than likely. Now this is the end of mercy for this period of time. Because look at verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is a picture to represent the fact that this means no one can stop the hand of God. Nobody can pray for mercy. Once this cataclysmic series of judgments begins until they're over, the time for intercession has passed. Christ is no longer here seen as knocking on the door. He's seen as effectively barging through it to act in sovereign judgment. And this, this pictures for us, no one can change his mind. Nobody can rush in there and apply some blood to the mercy seat. There, there will be no more mercy during this period of time. No more delays, no more opportunities to repent until the seven plagues have passed. And one would wonder, studying the record of Revelation, how many more even after this would even believe? The world will say to this exposition, all right, you're into that scare tactic again. Sounds like the war of the worlds. You ever heard of Orson Welles, Stephen? It does sound like it, in a way. In fact, it will be for Armageddon and a world war is just months away. This is no hoax. 
This is the truth. God does not cry wolf. He does not delight in panic. In his patience, he warns. And by his grace, he invites. I wonder, how long would you invite someone to your home before ceasing the invitation? A week? A month? A year? Noah invited people for 120 years to get a free ticket onto the barge he was building in the middle of nowhere as he promised a deluge was coming that would sweep the world away. Christ has effectively invited every generation to join the body of Christ now for some 2,000 years. And with every person and every generation, it's a fresh biblical Invitation. I wonder, my friend, how long has he been inviting you? And how long have you been declining the invitation? Isn't it about time you took his warning seriously and accepted his invitation personally? Romans 10, 13 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. What a wonderful word. I hope one benefit of this study today is that you have a greater appreciation for what it means to be saved. From many things. For many things. But certainly saved from this coming wrath of God. If you have sensed that still small voice inviting you, how wonderful. You have heard nothing more from me, I trust, than a plea to accept. And if you know enough of the Lord who invites you to benefit the atoning work of his cross for you and the sacrifice of his life and the shedding of his blood. You can accept him right where you stand. Accept the invitation. Call upon his name. Ask him to save you. You catch a vision of God like the one John recorded for us. Could we do anything other than become his bondservants? Who find our greatest safety, our greatest joy, our greatest hope, our greatest longing, our greatest need fulfilled in this marvelous, gracious Lord. For those of you who have accepted the invitation, why don't you take a moment and just thank him that it was delivered clearly enough for you to understand and believe. The gift of faith became yours. Your eyes were opened. You were taken from the kingdom of despair and darkness and you were delivered into the kingdom of his son by grace through faith in Christ alone. You received it by faith and you thank him for it by faith. We have yet to see the fulfillment of these promises. But we preach them and we believe them and we pray them back to our Father in faith.
our desire for you to settle this and to sign your personal RSVP to the glory of the coming King and the coming kingdom. Father, you have expressed to us your greatness and your majesty and your purity and your holiness. And you have reminded us of your love for us and your grace. And even as believers, we draw down the deposit of grace and mercy every day. We're grateful. It's new every morning. We are needy people. Entirely dependent upon your grace. Not up to salvation, but every day beyond until we see you one day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us out. Thank you for assembling us today to rehearse these great truths. And we would say to you, we're grateful that you love us and that you loved us first. And because of that, we love you. Thank you.